And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. We've been in a series of messages through verses 1 through 13 of Luke, chapter 4, commonly known as the uh, Temptations of Christ. The Temptations of Christ. And you know, the past couple of weeks, we looked at the first temptation, where Satan challenged Jesus to turn the stones into bread. And then we looked at the second temptation last week, where Satan uh, challenged Jesus to fall down and worship him in order to receive all the kingdoms of the earth. And you remember that we are looking at the temptations of Christ through the lens of Adam and Eve in the garden and the Israelites in the wilderness. In First John, he tells us, don't love the world or either the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And we see that matrix, that threefold matrix of temptation in the life of Adam and Eve, and we see it in the lives of the Israelites. So, as we've said in the past, it's no surprise that the Lord Jesus is being tempted with these very same things. And so, after looking at the first two, we look at the third this morning, and we're going to concentrate on verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12. Let me read that again. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered in verse 12 and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In verse 9, I want you to notice a couple of things, first of all, that the location and the activity or action of this temptation. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem. That's very significant. In fact, Matthew's account calls it the holy city. And he has Jesus stand on the pinnacle or the edge of the temple. The temple was the spiritual center for all of Judaism, and the building was about 180 feet high, so you can get some idea of how steep this was. And uh, it would be very, very visible to all conscientious Jews. And Satan challenges Jesus to prove his identity as God's Son by leaping off the temple. We don't necessarily know the mind of Satan, so we can't be sure as to what his motive was. Nevertheless, we know what Jesus' response was. And Jesus' response in verse 12 helps us to understand the nature of this particular temptation. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, not only the location and the activity, but secondly, notice Satan's perversion of Scripture. Look at verses 10 and 11. Satan offers a quote from sacred Scripture. It is from Psalm 91 apparently as an encouragement to get Jesus to jump. You see the progression? Satan has failed the first two times to lead Jesus to sin with temptation. Now, he's saying, in essence, all right, Jesus, you want to obey God? You want to obey the Scripture? I can cite Scripture too. And here's a wonderful opportunity for you to obey the Scripture and to submit yourself to God, or so it seems. Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm which declares God as a shelter, a refuge, 
a place of protection and care for those who trusted him, for those who know him. Well, Satan quotes two verses in the middle of this psalm completely out of context. The whole of Psalm 91 promises God's protection for those who, being while being in his will and serving him, find themselves in danger. And Satan offers a twisted and perverted application which was never intended by God. He makes it sound as though God offers protection to those who willfully engage in sinful activities. As if he removes the natural consequences of sinful acts, which he does not. Psalm 91 does not promise protection from artificially created crises in which Christians call to God in order to test his love and care. And that's what Satan is doing. That's the practicality of this uh, temptation. Jumping from the roof in order to test God's promises would not have been part of God's will for Jesus. It's a reckless type of behavior. And aside from the main thrust of our text, this is a textbook example of a distortion of sacred Scripture. The devil is a master in the art of twisting and perverting and distorting God's Word, as he does as much here in an attempt to lead Jesus to sin. Part of the practice of Jesus with the Word is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Whenever you come across something in the Bible that seems obscure, you can always go to another place that will make the obscure clear. Whenever something seems ambiguous, you can go to another place which is more specific and defined and speaks to the particular issue. And we need to practice that sort of thing. If most people, most conscientious individuals who approach the Bible practice the analogy of faith or allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, you'd have less complaining about so-called contradictions. They wouldn't find any. And there would be less confusion about what the Bible teaches and says. They took Jesus' word when he was on earth, and they twisted it and distorted it. And Satan continues to do that to this very day, so that souls end up eternally in hell, not listening or paying attention to the warnings of Almighty God. But you notice Jesus' response quickly to Satan. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Mesa. Jesus leaves off that latter part, but most conscientious Jews would know what he is talking about. In the passage, Moses was referring to an incident during Israel's wilderness wanderings. And the incident is recorded in Exodus 17, which Nick read for us this morning as our first scripture reading. The people were thirsty, and they were ready to rebel against Moses and return to Egypt because they didn't have a drink of water. God ended up supplying the water, but only after the people had quarreled and tested the Lord. In fact, as the text says, they were ready to stone Moses. They were filled with arrogance and presumption, and they took steps to move forward with what they wanted. On the attitude, I want what I want, and I want it right now. The driving force behind the Israelites' question or accusation at the end of that text, is the Lord among us or not? The driving thrust behind that is, we will not acknowledge God's presence and favor unless or until he grants us what we want when we want it. 
You see, the Israelites presumed upon God's grace. And that is the heart of putting God to the test. They lost their sense of humility and gratitude. They now had a spirit which says, We have, or what have you done for me lately? As if the Lord was some sort of a cosmic bellboy to show up whenever we have or verbalize a need. But Jesus refused to act presumptuously or disobediently. Perhaps you see the connection here between this third temptation and the third category of the Apostle John's do not love the world passage. Remember the third category? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Eve fell prey to that. She saw the uh, fruit that it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable to make one wise. In other words, it's desirable to be the kind of person I want to be apart from God. Autonomously, rebelliously, apart from God. Pride is a very deadly sin because it leads to independence from God and self-sufficiency. And Adam and Eve participated in this, the boastful pride of life. They fell prey to Satan. And we will fall prey too because this sort of thing leads us to test our God and to fall into sin. Now this is a a challenging type of sin. Part of the reason we're doing a three-part series is to probe deeper on each one of these temptations so that we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes in our lives. And so what I want to do today is give you three applications or uh, three areas where we might be putting God to the test so that we test ourselves instead of God. Number one, we put God to the test when we deliberately disobey His Word. And I might add, when we practice sin, we deliberately disobey His Word and or practice sin. Satan tried to create a doubt concerning Jesus' identity as the Son of God, as he did in the first temptation, in order to lead Jesus to rebel and to go into disobedience, deliberate disobedience to the Father. When the temptation was presented as a challenge and an opportunity to exercise faith, this is how slick Satan is. It's like you're saying, Jesus, look, if you're the Son of God, God's Word is true and you obey the Word of God, then here's a quotation from Psalm 91, and this speaks to you. In one sense, it wasn't out of context, but it was the motive behind why Satan gave it. The boastful pride of life and putting God to the test has a a natural element of arrogance to it. That's what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do, to arrogantly assume control of his own life and to basically fulfill the Word of God, the will of the Father, but in a very, very ungodly way. God's work must be done in God's way. He doesn't take shortcuts. Basically, it's an attempt to reverse the creator-creature distinction. We begin to live for our glory instead of God's glory. That's what Satan was doing with Jesus. And you're God, right? You're equal with the Father, right? Well, why is he calling the shots? Rise up and do the very thing you need to do in order to prove to me your identity. Whenever we test God, we can engage in deliberate disobedience or the practice 
of sin. First John says, whoever practices sin is not a child of God. It's very important that we examine ourselves at that point. Because a child of God who practices sin will ultimately be corrected by God. If indeed that person is a child of God, because every child of God receives discipline and correction. There are examples of this in the Bible. People that deliberately disobeyed God's word. I think of Cain. He enjoyed God's discipline even and correction. You remember when uh, he was downcast because his offering was not suitable. It was not like his brother Abel's. And God came to him. And God spoke to him. And God gave him a word of correction concerning his offering. Nevertheless, Cain acted as if God had never even spoken to him at all. And he went out and he murdered his brother in cold blood. And then he spoke arrogantly and deceitfully to God when he acted like he didn't know what happened to Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? We fall into that kind of indolence where we sin with a high hand. That we deliberately do something that we know God's Word says don't do. Or we engage in sin and we continue to practice it. Cain enjoyed benefits, but he still sinned. I think of Korah's rebellion. An entire clan of people who thought themselves to be enlightened enough to lead one day and control their own lives. And they verbally attacked Moses, but they were really rebelling against God. And you remember the story, God opened up the ground and swallowed the entire clan of people and their animals and their children and everything else. It was a scary time. Let me challenge you, brothers and sisters. Do you have any areas in your life where you know you're rebelling against God. You know the Scripture says something to say, do this or not do this. And yet, there is a willfulness inside of you to say, I don't care. I will do what I want to do, and I will raise my head in arrogance above the Lord. Be careful. Because if you are a believer, God will not tolerate that sort of thing. And He will convict you And you don't want to allow your conscience to grow to a point where it's seared. And you don't hear God's conviction anymore. We put God to the test when we deliberately disobey His Word and practice sin. Secondly, we put God to the test when we ignore or manipulate His Word for selfish reasons or gain. Put God to the test when we ignore or manipulate His Word for selfish reasons or gain. Satan manipulated and misused God's Word in an attempt to encourage Jesus to disobey. It was the devil's attempt to put a false idea of faith before Jesus. And the boastful pride of life in putting God to the test has a natural element of this autonomy. It seeks to live for selfish purposes and pleasures instead of discovering and following God's will. Human beings have a tendency to twist and manipulate God's Word for the sake of our own gain. This kind of lifestyle has room for the concept of God, but not God Himself. And sometimes we can be rebelling and yet entertaining the presence of God or the concept of God at the same time. Satan sought to entice Jesus to deviate from the course of the Father's will. He tried to lead the Son to live autonomously, from the Father. The type of attitude is this. God, don't call me. I'll call you. I'll get in touch with you if you're needed. It's not a wholesale rejection. But I really want to do what I want to do. And for the reasons that I want to do it. There are examples of this in the Bible. I think of Balaam. 
He sold himself and his reputation as a prophet to the highest bidder. He postured himself as a prophet of God, but his heart wasn't right. He was really looking out for number one, for material gain. And it's so subtle to look at his life. I think of Hophni and Phinehas, sons of Eli, the priest. They used and abused their office for selfish gain and sexual favors, and God killed them because they tested the Almighty. I think of Absalom. He thought being the king David's son gave him a license to take advantage of his father, King David. And Absalom sought to steal his father's throne and even kill his father. And he lost his life as a result of God's judgment or correction. It's a scary thing when we start manipulating God's Word to our own advantage. Whenever we approach Christ for the wrong reasons, I can't help but think of Simon the Sorcerer in the New Testament. Whenever he approached Peter and says, Give me the Holy Spirit too. He didn't do it because he wanted his life changed. He did it because he was insecure and he wanted to be somebody special. He wanted to have the power that the apostles had. He tried to buy the Lord for his purposes. And you cannot do that. You put God to the test. Ananias and Sapphira, they practiced hypocrisy. They disobeyed God and made a show of it. And they lived and worshipped autonomously as if God were not even present. And God killed them in the New Testament. Judas Iscariot was a disciple, but sold out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. This is an example of presuming upon God's grace at best, or turning the grace of God into a license to sin, as Jude says. And ladies and gentlemen, conscience plays a huge role here. As Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. Sometimes we can engage in a practice that may be lawful, may not be opposed in Scripture, and yet we know down inside of our hearts that that particular thing, that substance, that activity is a picture of idolatry in our own hearts. And it must go. We put God to the test when we begin to soft-pedal His Word. It doesn't have the power and the impact that it should have in our lives because we are entertaining areas of sin. Search your hearts today. Are you ignoring anything in Scripture? You know, there are things in my life and years back, and even today, when I run across them in Scripture, I don't want to read them because I know they convict me about something. And the thing to do is not keep hiding, but come into the light and say, Lord, please take this out of my life. I don't want to do this anymore. This sinful habit, this pattern, this practice of sin, it's got to go. Because I don't want to put you to the test. And I don't want to go to the woodshed. I don't want your discipline that way. I want to humble myself so that you don't have to humble me. Well, we put God to the test when we deliberately disobey or practice sin. We put God to the test when we ignore or manipulate His Word for selfish reasons. And we also put God to the test, thirdly, when we engage in unauthorized behavior beyond the boundaries of His Word. Satan sought to get Jesus to do something ridiculous. He sought to lead Jesus to presume upon God's grace. It doesn't matter what you do, Jesus. This is Satan's attitude. God will rescue and take care of you. And note carefully, the devil's suggestion involves the creation of unauthorized, risky circumstances. 
not to trust God and obey His Word. We're living in a culture like this. It keeps on trying to expand the boundaries beyond God's Word. Think about it. And they do it in terms of authenticity. You know, that's another really interesting word that goes along here uh, in this particular message. Authenticity means uh, to be who you are, to be genuine. But our world turns that upside down, and it says you need to be genuine, you need to be who you are, and you need to do this by throwing off all conventions, by throwing out this idea of a God and a heaven and a hell. You need to be authentic. You need to be properly educated. You've been brainwashed. That is not what it means to be authentic. Be authentic is a genuine article. And when you go to Scripture, you learn the truth about yourself and about who your God is. And therefore, you can be truly authentic. But we're living in a world where they say being authentic is essentially a cover for willful, deliberate rebellion against the authority of God. It promotes the lie that belief in God and obedience to His Word demonstrates your bondage to ignorance and your lack of freedom. You need to free yourself and express yourself. Be yourself. We talked about that a little bit last time. We see that in our culture. Instead of God's binary categories of male and female, we're creating additional categories for you to express your gender. Expansion of God's boundaries for sexual orientation and marriage. This is what Satan does. He keeps on expanding beyond God's Word, and he calls this being authentic and creative. And that's what Satan was doing to Jesus. Leap off the pinnacle of the temple. You don't have to go to Calvary. You don't have to go to the cross. It's unnecessary, and it is ill-advised. Take the easy way out here and leap off the pinnacle of the temple. Do something creative. Express yourself, Jesus. Be authentic. Satan is a liar, as we all know. So to be truly authentic is to go back to what the Bible has to say. As Paul said in Acts, in Him, that is, in God Almighty, we live and move and have our being. And that's what our anchor is. I can't help but think of illustrations in the Bible like Nadab and Abihu. You know, a lot of these illustrations are religious people. A lot of these illustrations are professional clergy. No wonder Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? And then Christ will say, depart from me, I never knew you. There was no true saving faith there. There was no heart for me. It was all artificial. Nadab and Abihu offered strange, unauthorized fire before the Lord as an offering in Leviticus 10, and God struck them dead. I think of Samuel. He played with sin and entered into many unauthorized situations in his life until the Lord left him. It's one of the most tragic points in the Bible where Samson over and over again is playing, teasing Delilah with the secret of his strength until finally she gets it out of him. He gives it up, and the Bible says he did not know that the Lord had left him. God's Spirit departed. You say, well, I don't know if Samson was saved. I don't know either. I don't want to speculate about that. All I know is what the Bible has to say. And it's frightening. And it's a reminder to us not to tempt the Lord. King Saul was charged to wait for Samuel to arrive to offer the sacrifice before the battle. 
But he began to panic, and he acted with presumption toward God as he offered the sacrifice himself, a task reserved for the priests. You know, these are examples of seeking to control and even accelerate the will of God in my life. Take care that you don't do that. True faith submits to God's will as Jesus taught. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For Jesus to jump from the pinnacle of the temple would have been a ridiculous test of God's power. And it would have been out of God's will for Jesus' life. Many times we want something from God and we want to accelerate His will. We want to help Him along to get to the point where He answers our prayer. And if we don't do it in terms of our activities, we do it in our hearts. And we begin to get bitter with Him. The Bible says over and over again, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Why? Because God likes to tease you and put you off? No. It's in the waiting on the Lord that you develop your heart for Him. It's in the waiting on the Lord that He truly gives you your heart's desires. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the heart's, your heart's desires. But that takes waiting. It takes contemplation, meditation in God's Word. That's one of the most important things in our lives, and we try to put it off. And we try to accelerate God's activity and will for our lives. Don't do it. I must close here. The last thing we see is verse 13. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Satan never, ever lets up. He may take a vacation here and there for a day or two, but he'll come back. All three of these temptations were violations of God's Word. All three of these temptations aim at making Jesus' life and ministry more comfortable to eliminate pain and difficulty and suffering. Anything but taking up a cross. All three temptations were designed to lead Christ to sin as Adam and Eve did and the children of Israel, so he would fail. And most importantly, all three temptations were designed as shortcuts to eliminate Christ's work of redemption, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Satan tried his best to get Christ to deviate, but he didn't do it. Jesus overcame temptation to sin, and he enabled all of his children to do the same because he lives inside of our hearts by his Spirit, and he intercedes for us before the Father. That's the good news. God is gracious. And on this side of the cross, under the new covenant, we see extraordinary grace and extraordinary patience in God as he works in our hearts and our lives, drawing us closer to himself and eliminating sin out of our lives. I hope that's your testimony this morning. That's why we come to this table. Jesus didn't fail. He went to the cross and he secured redemption. And he enables us and empowers us to live our lives for him in holiness as he lived for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenging word, this scary prospect of testing you, of trying you. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts and lives and that you would eliminate any sin that's there, even subtle sins. Help us, Lord, not to fall into the influence of practicing sin. Help us, Lord, to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run the race with endurance. And Lord, if one or two are here this morning and they don't know you by faith in Christ, save them. Lord, for the rest of us, convict us, challenge us, Encourage us by your grace and presence. 
as we move toward this supper now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.